Welcome to Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations with Nina Impala. Do you have questions about death? How about events surrounding death? Or perhaps you have questions that need to be answered after death. On this program, we talk frankly and openly about the subject and invite you to share your comments and experiences as well. Now, here is your host, Nina Impala. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inspiring End of Life Conversations. I'm so glad you're here. We've got a really great show today, and we're going to be talking about hospice today. And I'm bringing on a very special doctor onto the show, Dr. Graham. Dr. Graham, in 1991, completed his three-year residency in family practice at the San Bernardino County Hospital in Southern California. He spent the next 10 years working with various medical groups in Hawaii, Northern California, and Southern California. In 2000, he moved to San Diego to join the Call Doctor Medical Group. For the next five years, he did house calls for homebound patients. For the past 15 years, he has served as a medical director for several home care, home health, and hospice agencies. During these past 15 years, he has focused his practice on end-of-life care. He works closely with the whole hospice team of nurses, social workers, and spiritual counselors. He continues to bring hospice care to the patient and family wherever they are, whether it's at home, aborting care, nursing homes, and hospitals. And I want to bring him on the show today because we're going to enlighten you about what hospice really is. So, hello, Dr. Graham. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing great, thanks, Nina. How are you doing? We're doing good. So, we're going to jump right in here, and I know you've been doing hospice for a long time, and I'm going to tell my audience that I have worked with Dr. Graham, and it has been my wonderful pleasure to work with this man and the way he looks at hospice and how he enters a room. So, I want to ask you, Dr. Graham, as a physician and also being with your patients, what does hospice mean to you? So, when... And, and I've been asked that a lot of times uh, over the years, so, and, it's, and it changes. It, it changes every time with new patients and um, new situations. But at this point in time, I think the most important thing for me about hospice is that it's not a place, it's not a physical building or place, but that hospice is a team of unique healthcare workers who have experience in dealing with death and dying and that team involves nurses, social workers, spiritual counselors, and volunteers. So, I think that you're bringing up a really good point that a lot of people think that hospice is a place. And yep. that team of people is so important when we take on a hospice patient. So, each, each discipline has a certain job to do. So that would be social worker, of course, the doctor, RN, home health. What am I leaving out? Bereavement care. Yeah, you're thinking, oh, no, home health aid, an yes. aid that comes into the home and helps with um, bathing and, and, and visits weekly, massage. Okay. And each patient gets all of this. Each patient gets every dis- discipline, correct? Yes, and, and then correct. Correct. On top of that, what I think is also very important that we've talked about before is that you review as a hospice physician your job, because people always have this question, am I going to see a doctor or why hasn't a doctor come over, correct? And they really want to see you. 
But if you could explain, like when, when I remember when I was working with you, you know, we were had two sets of two groups between North San Diego, East San Diego, and South San Diego. And we would divide them up, up amongst all of our patients. And at one time, I think that we had like 150 patients. Yes, we, we did. Right? We review every single case, correct? Yes, correct. So if the patient changes or anything happens with that patient, whether their pain changes or maybe they get better, maybe they have a decline, maybe they've lost weight, that's accounted for at every meeting. So their level of care may change, right? Yes. Depending on what they need. So the doctor, I'm trying to, because I'm trying to say, you know, and show people how much the doctor is involved. So, so literally the doctors, because as hospices get larger, they have more than one medical director involved. And so literally the doctors are involved on a daily basis. The nurses are going out and seeing patients and they are the doctor's eyes and ears. And when they go into a, they see a patient and that patient is having pain issues, nausea issues, weakness issues, some change in their physical condition, that nurse goes in, evaluates them. And then again, this whole idea of the team, that nurse call, that nurse is a case manager and he or she is going to call the doctor and let them know physically what's going on. And then they'll make a decision. But as to how to treat those symptoms and make, get the patients comfortable. But also that nurse case manager, if they see that there are psychological issues, social issues, spiritual issues, they're going to reach out to the rest of their team and, and bring them back in. And the team is going to take care of that patient. Okay. This is so important. So, and this is the part that I love about hospice. When you say, you know, there's physical issues, but there's also spiritual issues and there are emotional issues. And they need to be addressed. Any of the disciplines that walk in, and I remember this myself, is that we know the signs. We look for the signs when a patient is having anxiety, when they're not ready to die, or they're not accepting the fact that they're dying. That's also what we take into account. When And spiritual care helps with that. Social work helps with that as well. I mean, I think everybody on the team really does that and says, you know, Mrs. Smith is really having a hard time accepting the fact that her her cancer has metastasized or that she's having shortness of breath. She's not accepting it. She's got a lot of anxiety. And they tell you that or they discuss it with the social worker. And everybody really comes together. And this is what I love about it. Do you think that hospices differ, Dr. Graham, you know, depending on levels of care? Can Different hospices personalize their care more than another? I mean, what should people look for when they say, okay, mom's got to go on hospice? What, right. So, so, like what, so what people, yeah, what people want to be looking for is that team. They want to be asking questions of the hospice about what is their hospice team and what, are their, what is their experience? Because that is what makes it really work. It's, it's that team working together, communicating together, and not only do you get each clinical discipline's experience as a voice, but you get each individual's unique voice on helping the patient normalize death and dying. Because we don't talk about death and dying anymore. No. Our, our, our medical system has changed so much over the last 60 years. People used to know what it was like. 
I mean, a community knew when someone was dying in a neighborhood and people were involved and people died at home um, 70 years ago, but that's all changed. And so, and the conversation has gone away. And so that team provides unique voices from their specialty experience and also from their own personal experiences. Okay. So I'm going to go through this. I'm going to be a little diligent here and, uh, because I want to say this, and this is something that I've witnessed. So when a patient is in a hospital, they've gotten the news and they're about to be discharged. Does And the, they say, okay, we want you to use, we're going to hand you this and we're going to have you use this hospice. Do you think that most families know that this is something that they can research and pick on their own? Or do they think? No. <laughs> Tell me about that. They have no idea. They have no idea. It And, and part of it is, you know, you're, you're in the hospital. Everybody in the hospital has a job of getting the patient to the point where they can be discharged. And then that that's like clockwork, that whole discharge thing. Yes. Um, but the hospice is a choice. And in San Diego County, we have uh, uh, over 40 hospices that you can choose from now. Oh, my gosh. So um, important to hear, yes. everyone. Yes. Yep. Yeah, there are, there's numerous hospices. So, so it definitely, if that com if that conversation is started, you want to ask them for the, uh, the, the biggest list they've got. Um, and, so and you, you want to ask them. Hospice, Dr. Graham, could you yelp it? Excuse me? <laughs> Just, could you yelp? Could you, yes, you actually can yelp it. And okay. you can Google it. Okay. If you go, if you Google hospice, they, you'll get all, you'll get a full list. You'll get pages. Um, so if you just do hospice in whatever area, Google hospice in any area you're in, that'll come up. Okay. Um, Important to know. And yeah. And if you're, if you, someone is suggesting hospice, always ask, say, well, have you had any experience? Have you had any family members? That's the other important part of normalizing the conversation. Take advantage. And most people will have family and friends that have had some experience with hospice. So kind and of so it's at getting input from everyone. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm always very surprised at you know people just take what's given to them, and and it's just because they don't know. They don't know. Hey, you know, call and find out. And you know, a lot of hospices are popping up all over the place. So I think it's it's just like going to a, a really good store where the quality is good. <laughs> you know, absolutely you suss it out and research it. And, um, and the other thing to remember in a hospital, I like to, to say to families, you know, you've been going 80 miles an hour, getting every treatment, trying to fix everything that we can in the hospital. And when the hospital realizes they can't do anymore, all of a sudden we're, we're at zero miles an hour hitting that brick wall. And the card that's offered out is hospice. Right. And so we're always in a, in a state of shock when that happens. Yeah, and when people come to us, and it's it's such a confusing time, you know, but yes. they are, you know, admitted, your loved ones admitted on hospice, very much like if you were getting admitted at a hospital, they call admissions and, and then they get the uh, referrals and things like that to move forward with the hospice. So it's very much, Absolutely. I said it's very much like being, when people ask me that question, I go, well, it's like being admitted to a hospital. You're going to be admitted onto hospice. And then, like, what would be, what would, to you, what would be the most important thing? I know you said the team, 
but with, and let's just say the family doesn't know about that, that team, what would be some other really important questions that they called your hospice, destiny hospice? What, what are some of the questions that they might ask? Because I don't so, think um, Graham, I just don't think they know or have a clue because. Well, we don't, we, no. we, we don't, we, I mean, we, even, even in, even nurses and doctors in our medical training, we're not taught about hospice. We learn about this afterwards. Yes. Um, so, so no, we don't know the things to ask. So, um, so the first question to ask is, um, will I, will I see a doctor? Because some hospices have doctors that come and do house visit or they are associated with medical groups that can do house visits. So, so that, to me, that's an important, important first question. Okay. Um, and then the second thing is, how often am I going to see a nurse? That's so important. And they should, they should be able to, that's very, very important. Um, and then the third one is, um, tell me about your, um, your aid services, the person that's going to come and help with bathing. Tell me how that works and how often I'll be seeing them. I think those would be the top three questions. I agree. Just those to get an questions. idea of what that service is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because on the number two question, I always feel that it's very important the amount of time that a hospice responds to a phone call from a family member. Right. That's something that's really important. And I think that because I've worked with people before that, you know, they've had problems getting people out to their, their residences. Maybe they're too far away or they're taking too long or they're understaffed. And uh, maybe because it's a newer hospice, I don't know. I just, there's a lot of different reasons for that. And to me, it's so important. If I call you and my mom's in pain and we don't know what to do because she's only on, you know, one milligram of Ativan and that's not doing it, you have to go through a doctor to get that um, prescription changed, correct? And so the amount of time for that phone call to get to your mom, that would be really, that would be an important be super important because you know that nurse is going to get out there and do what they need to do because your mom's suffering. So I think, and and that that's very important. Okay, I agree with that a hundred percent. I want to talk about one of the things that I thought would be so important for this show is a level of acceptance with people. And you know, we're going to take a break in just a little bit, but let me just give you an oversight of. What I think is so important for us as human beings to really realize that we're all going to die someday. And getting used to that kind of thinking, you know, Dr. Graham, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's in 20, 30, 40 years, the fact that inside of us, we have to just know that this will happen someday. And I think that as a society, We don't accept it at all. So when we get back from the break, I'd like to talk about that with you, Dr. Graham. All right, let's do it. We'll be right back. Thanks so much. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Nina offers an alternative to traditional counseling. Sessions are not just 50 minutes, but a full hour. When you go in for a regular counseling session, many times you don't remember everything. Nina's difference is a summary email after each session and or a follow-up phone call if needed up to two weeks after. Nina also provides hospital visit consultations as necessary. Sessions with Nina and Paula are $250. And if you book a three-session package, you will get a $100 discount. Let's get you feeling peaceful and happy again. Losing someone we love is one of the most challenging, fearful, and heart-rending experiences we are ever likely to face. In her book, Dearly Departed, Nina Impala shares stories of her experiences as a hospice volunteer for more than 12 years and how those experiences prepared her for the final days of her own parents. Nina emphasizes the importance of being a good listener and living a good life. Dearly Departed by Nina Impala is available in paperback or Kindle edition through Amazon.com or your favorite book retailer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. If you have a question for Nina Impala or her guest today, call into our program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to tutoringforthespirit at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Okay, we're back and we have got so much valuable valuable information about hospice on this uh, on this podcast. So I want to ask you this. We were talking the other day and you had mentioned something about after 25 years old, it's like your peak. And then every decade or so, you know, we're gonna notice changes in our body. And as a society Maybe it's an American thing. We just don't accept it. It's not happening. We're not going to go. We're not going to get sick. It, it's just going to be fine. And we just kind of wave it off and, until it finally gets here. And then, uh-oh. So tell me about that. Uh-oh, yes. So, <laughs> so all over the years, there, there's just so many times I just have walked into homes, and, and especially patients in their 80s and 90s. Um, and and we'll just sit down and I'll get them to, you know, tell me how we got, how we got into their home and what's been going on with them. And, um, and the conversation will come up, but, you know, how do you feel about, you know, dying? And they're like, well, Dr. Graham, we, I mean, we all know the moment you're born, you're going to die at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've made it this far, but what's confusing to me is, I, I was doing so well. I was doing so well. I was going to my doctor's visits. Everything was great. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I'm not, I can't do anything anymore. I'm like a wet noodle. And, and, I, and I'll just 
settle him down and say, well, let, let's think about this a little bit. I said, so our maximum peak in terms of strength, healing, our immune system, our brain function is 25. Mm-hmm. And every decade we drop a little more. So the 25 year old that, that sprains an ankle and the 35 year old that sprains an ankle, it takes longer for that 35 year old to get back on their feet. Mm-hmm. And then the next surprise decade is our forties. And mm-hmm. most people, what I said to him, do you remember starting to go and get magnifying glasses to, to see small print? And everybody laughs. Yep. It's and then I'll say, and do you remember in your fifties when you started le- forgetting where you put your car keys and where you put your glasses? Yeah. And so everyone's and every decade that goes on. And so, and, and it continues and we just get a little slower and a little slower. And when you sit down and no, again, normalize the conversation, not saying you're going to die right now, but just say, let's look at what your body and brain have done over the years. Everybody sees that. Yeah. And, and that's that to me, that's what we're missing in American society is, is just normalizing the conversation. Not that we need to talk about death all the time and keep saying, well, you know, we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. No, but, but normalize it and, and realize that at some point we are going to get to that point. And the more we can talk about it when we're well, then the more we can plan, make decisions, and let our friends and family know what those ex- what our expectations are. And then it isn't as traumatic when we finally get to that place. It's not going from 80 miles an hour into a wall to zero miles an hour. Yeah, it's true. And it's so interesting. You know, I'll tell you a little story that I experienced. I had this, uh, it was when... Uh, I was at uh, Kindred, and I did a bereavement call, and the lady was so angry. She was just yelling in the phone. She was really mad at the doctors, and I just listened, and she just said, you know, when he fell, they did everything wrong, and they killed him. And I very gently said, how old was your dad? And she said, He was 93 years old, and he fell. And I very gently said to her, you know, a 93-year-old that falls on their head, it's never really good. Something is always going to happen. It just can't be good. He's 93. And the next thing I said to her was, when your dad fell, what was the first thing you did? Well, I called 911. Okay, good. And then what happened? He went to the hospital and the doctor started to take care of him. And I stayed right there with him. And I said, you did everything for him because you loved him. She said, yes. And I go, do you think you did the best you could? And she goes, yeah. I go, do you think the doctors did the best they could with the 93-year-old man? She goes, yeah. I said, okay. I said, just, you know, forgive yourself a little bit. It was just his time to die, which I know sounds trite. and People hate to hear that. But when a 93-year-old man falls and bumps his head, there's going to be problems. Right. And even if they do recover, they're not the same person that they were before they fell. No. And that, that's, the other, that's the other conversation you're always having with patients on hospice is helping them understand that each injury, each hospitalization, each infection 
there's a recovery, but it's never back to who we were before. And that's just how our lives in this reality progress. Right. And, you know, with that level of acceptance, Dr. Graham, I think also comes with, like you were saying, you know, that they're they're never going to come back to what they were, they're not going to heal the same. Just like when you were making the analogy of a 25-year-old breaking their ankle and a 35-year-old breaking an ankle, that one of the questions I bring to people, because I saw this a lot when I was working in the ICU at the hospital. With my patients, I, I had to ask them that question, do you think that your loved one is going to be the person that they were before the event that happened? And it's always amazing to me the amount of people that really think that person's going to come back 100%. And that, I think, is just people being human. It's just like, oh, you know, they're going to rally one more time. You know, my mom was so strong. We never, ever, you know, thought that she would get to a point where she was never going to get better. She was our mom. She was a strong, Italian, beautiful woman, you know. And it's almost like our, our minds are just not made to think of it. That we just keep- no, and it is it is hard to visualize that. And again, that's what the, the hospice team does is they really help patients and families see how normal this all, it all is, and that it just didn't happen with that fall. That right. things were slowing down and changing. This fall is the event, and it's the traumatic event that we're always going to look at. But there's mm-hmm. a big, much bigger picture going on. Right. And, and, trying- and that's what our minds aren't, don't, aren't able to just grasp right away without help. Well, tell us about the mind-body experience at the end of life, the way you were talking about it uh, earlier, you know, when you talk about mind-body. So, so whenever we're dealing with patients, everybody's just very focused on the concrete and physical. And, and they just, they, they're just looking at whether it's their heart that's slowing down, whether it's, they've got um, end stage lung disease and their lungs are slowing down mm-hmm. or they're, you know, they're a hundred years old and, and everything is slowing down and they're just, they're looking at their bodies and they're going, so how am I going to die? And what I've learned over these 15 years is that it isn't, again, it's not one simple um processes. It, it's a complex, multiple involvement in this process. And it's a mind, it's a mind-body process where as our body slows down and our mind starts to accept what's going on, okay. understand what's going on, mm-hmm. and is ready to let go of this reality. And, and you see everybody does it in their own way. True. Um, but everybody lets go of the same thing. So, you know, they're, you, when you first meet a patient, they're either watching TV, keeping track of the news, keeping track of daily events, yes. and those kind of things slowly go away. Right. Appetites change, energy levels change, and that unique mind-body experience slowly begins to let go of this reality. Okay. And, and what's going on here is no longer the focus of their life. Um, And the families watch that happen from the sideline. I love the way you're putting it. I want to, it's almost like I've got this on the tip of my tongue. Um, It's almost like a meshing between the mind and the body. It's almost like the the mind has to catch up with that the body's leaving this reality. And yes, and get in touch and get in touch. Because, you know, when we're busy working and, and, you know, busy doing things, 
we lose touch with that, but it's there all the time. And, and especially in hospice and end of life, it's a very important part of the journey. So what I tell people that are grieving, you know, that it's, um, and I've witnessed this in a couple of people, and I know that you could talk about this too. So let's see, how can I put this? So let's just say when I'm with a patient, and the patient is starting to mesh. The mind-body is coming together. Okay, this is really happening. I'm going to pass away. And the patient starts going internal. They start eating less, talking less, like you say, watching the news. They really could care less about going out and getting a bite to eat. They're not really interested in the smell of food or anything that has to do with food, which many times, Dr. Graham, hurts the family. They're like, well, well, I don't understand. They're not talking to me. They're not eating anymore. And then that conversation, or like you say, normalizing that part of the dying experience. This is normal. Right. Like we yep. know what a big deal food can be at the end of life. And when you ask of a dying body to process a hamburger or, <laughs> I don't know, vegetables or something like that. Right. It's very difficult for a dying body to process it and, and go through what it needs to grow. If the kidneys aren't working, if the gallbladder isn't working, you know, if the liver's not working, it's hard for them. And it's so interesting to me how many people don't think about that. And it's always my conversation when I have the food conversation with people is, okay, look at your loved one right now. And let's say you're, you're going to feed them this meal that you're making them right now. Do you think that their body can process that? Yeah, and, and, and that's where, again, whoever's helping with that conversation, you're normalizing, you're helping them step back and see. The other thing that I share with families is, and patients um, is, you know, when you're resting most of the day in bed, you're not burning up any calories. You know, everyone around you is running around, they're driving around, they're, they're taking care of the house, they're doing things, they're burning up calories all the time. But when you're lying in bed most of the time, and so it's normal not to be hungry. Yeah. So, you know, even with like, um, let's just shine a little light on this with, because a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people out there, they're taking care of their parents, you know, with dementia and Alzheimer's does, you know, let's say they get to, I don't know, um, maybe they're in the fourth stage of dementia. They're not really interested in food, but people are feeding right. them. Does that keep people alive longer than they should be in your opinion i don't know that's a little tricky question but i sometimes well, I no it, it uh, isn't it isn't because okay. because and this is this is the difference between our day-to-day medicine and and end of life okay care. and okay. that is and that is we we don't we don't focus on the numbers of how long can we possibly make this life last what what we want to start thinking about is what how do we create the best quality of life Okay. So, so that's where the question is. It's, mm-hmm. it's what is this quality of life? What, if, if I'm looking after someone with dementia, if we could turn back the clock 20 years and show this person what they look like now, what would they say to you? I've had this conversation with many, many adult children and just say, look, let's, let's go back in time to when your mom or dad was 50 uh-huh. And let's show them a movie of this person that we're looking at right now. What That's would they say? And they doesn't. They've got answers right away. And I mm-hmm. and it's like okay. So now, if if they wouldn't want to be like this, what do we do to give them the best quality of life without prolonging their life? And yeah. so you start 
just offering people food and water with dementia. And, and if they don't take it, it's don't. okay. Yeah, don't force it. Right. It, yeah, and, and you, you and I both have seen so much suffering on that point with the patient. It's very yes. difficult to watch yeah. because yep. the board and cares a lot of times I, yeah. I know that you know. <laughs> so I yes. love the way you always say we need to have the food conversation. And uh, it's a conversation that I have with people. And I think it was really important to share it on the show today because it's something, you know, you see with dementia and Alzheimer's in the very end stages of dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, when yes. they're losing weight and they're declining, which is a normal thing. If Once they start declining, you know, we, we do what we have to do. Yes. Okay, so that was really important for people to hear. And if you're dealing with anybody that's got dementia and Alzheimer's, just know, you know, you can email me. And at the end of the show, we're going to be giving out um, Dr. Graham's information about where he's at. And he's going to be happy to answer any questions that you have. So if people, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about dementia and Alzheimer's, Dr. Graham, if, if, because a lot of people are dealing with it right now. So let's touch on it a little bit. You know, when... A patient has got Alzheimer's, is it pretty much up to the doctor to say, you know, when to put them on hospice? Because I think a lot of family members have a little hard time with that. There's a gray area because especially if their brain's completely gone, maybe they're still getting up a little bit and walking around. At what stage in Alzheimer's or dementia do they usually take hospice patients? This would be good for anybody to know or maybe start thinking about it. Right. So... So again, just the normalizing, you know, we want to have these conversations when we're all feeling really well. Okay. And, and, you know, what, what, you know, we want to do this when we're, when, when we're well, because Mm -hmm. when you start having the conversation, when you're sick, there's just so much emotional um, energy around Mm -hmm. that, that makes the conversation more difficult. Um, so, you know, we, we want to start, you know, we want to start thinking in our fifties and sixties. Okay. When I get to that point, not ready for hospice, but when I'm starting to slow down, when, when, when medicine isn't helping me anymore, how do I picture my life? How do I want it to be? Um, and, and focus on quality of life. And Mm -hmm. so when we're dealing with dementia patients and we want to know, well, you know, when is hospice right for them? Um, you do, you do need to involve a doctor. Because mm-hmm. Medicare expects a physician to to write the order for hospice, um, but family can initiate the conversation, and the conversation is, you know, is going to the hospital, is treating every infection, every pneumonia, every urinary tract infection, is that really creating quality of life for my mom or dad? And that's the conversation to have with the doctor, and and the moment that we do that that gives the doctor the opportunity just to share with the family and help make that decision. So and, you, and I think that's, go ahead. Well, at the end with, with, um, Oh, we're going to have to go to break again in a minute, but we've got time. So when you, so do you think that when a person is getting to end stages, Alzheimer's dementia, there's, there usually is more hospital visits, correct? And that's kind of like, Oh, there's, there's more falling, there's, okay. there's, there's more infections, there's more times of anxiousness, anxiety, combativeness. I mean, there's, cl- there's multiple things and, and we lose track because when we're caregivers, you're just, yes. that's your normal life. You're always yes. dealing with it. But, and that's why the conversation is so important to step back and normalize and say, hey, what is 
quality of right, life right now. And, is, and what happens? So many dementia patients, you take them into the emergency room, it makes them worse. Lights, noises, they don't recognize anything. It's terrifying. It, it's horrible for them. Yeah, it's true because, uh, and there's, you know, and the family members go through so much with this. And, um, you know, when I was doing groups over there in, in San Diego, there the, the guilt that came with having to put them in a memory facility or making that final decision is something that we help people with on hospice. So when they make that decision and they come on, you know, when you send the social worker out or you send bereavement out and you get to talk about that stuff, people really, it helps them a lot let go of that guilt and frustration. And they're tired. The caregivers are so tired. So we're going to go to break, Dr. Graham. We're going to talk more when we get back. Okie doke. All right. Thanks. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nina offers an alternative to traditional counseling. Sessions are not just 50 minutes, but a full hour. When you go in for a regular counseling session, many times you don't remember everything. Nina's difference is a summary email after each session and or a follow-up phone call if needed up to two weeks after. Nina also provides hospital visit consultations as necessary. Sessions with Nina and Paula are $250. And if you book a three-session package, you will get a $100 discount. Let's get you feeling peaceful and happy again. Losing someone we love is one of the most challenging, fearful, and heart-rending experiences we are ever likely to face. In her book, Dearly Departed, Nina Impala shares stories of her experiences as a hospice volunteer for more than 12 years and how those experiences prepared her for the final days of her own parents. Nina emphasizes the importance of being a good listener and living a good life. Dearly Departed by Nina Impala is available in paperback or Kindle edition through Amazon.com or your favorite book retailer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to inspiring end-of-life conversations if you have a question for nina impala or her guest today call into our program at 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to tutoring for the spirit at gmail.com now back to this week's program okay we're back so, Dr. Graham, we were talking you know, about the dementia and Alzheimer's process and having that conversation early, which I think is fantastic and a really good idea. And the signs of when you're Alzheimer dementia patient is a lot of trips to the hospital, a lot of things going wrong, that it might be time for hospice. Really great information because hospice helps out a lot for dementia and Alzheimer's patients. 
the one thing that I would love for you to do is really give us an example of what a good death means, maybe with one of your cancer patients or someone that felt really prepared, was really open, accepting, maybe what that looked like and tell us that story in a way that, you know, too, we can help other people understand the importance of having a good death, bringing a good hospice on. So, so a lot of things we, we talked about, you know, hospice is often thrown at us all of a sudden at a discharge from a hospital. And so, and, and we're kind of in shock and, and people, when they're t- offered hospice, it's like they often will feel helpless and they'll feel um, that they've lost all independence, that, that these people, this team is going to come into their home, take over everything and run their life. And many people feel that way. Um, and the reality is it should be just the opposite. Choices never go away. If anything, we should become more independent because the team should be there offering choices and helping patients and families make those decisions at the end of life. Mm-hmm. Um, our most difficult patients are people from the medical field because, and I, 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 will, I won't choose one specific um, patient and family I looked after because this happens so many times, but people in the medical field, they can't turn, they can't turn that healthcare brain off and they just have endless questions and mm-hmm. they feel things going on with their body and they're calling hospice and the nurse isn't coming out and explaining stuff the, the way they want and they're all in a panic. And so, so many times I have walked into a home um, with a cancer patient they're a nurse or a doctor or a physical therapist or a, a, a um, psychotherapist, a counselor. Mm-hmm. And I walk into their home and families all hovered around the bed and they're, you can see the tightness in their brow and the tension. And they're just like, well, I think this is going on. And I think, what are, we get, what are you going to do? How are you going to help me? I, my pain isn't managed. And just sitting down, holding their hand and talking to them mm-hmm. about, what's going on in their bodies, getting them to get in touch with that, and then sitting down and saying, so here are ways we can fix this. Here are our options on managing your pain. Here, here are the kinds of pills. Here are the patches. Here are the ways to make you feel comfortable with your nausea. Here are the ways to help your body keep functioning normally now that you're not getting up and walking around anymore. And you just slowly watch that face relax and relax and an hour later they're smiling because they realize they are in control right and they are going to be making decisions and that they aren't at the mercy of their disease their cancer their heart they can still do things hospice just isn't about stopping it's it's all about life and creating that best quality of life for however long we can do that okay so, yeah. And for me, that's actually all, uh, really a daily experience. Every home I go into, mm-hmm. that's happening at some level. And once you get there, that once they see that, once they see they're going to be making deci- those decisions and they're going to have choices, that moves them on that path of that mind-body experience to make those decisions and get ready to let go. I love what you just said. And I want to just touch on the control. People don't understand that when a person is dying, that they're losing their control of everything. You know, they're even bathing themselves or doing their nails or combing their hair. 
it may seem like a little thing to us, but one of the biggest lessons I've learned is when I go into a person's home, I ask permission to help them with things because many times they just, it's, it's, they have nothing left to control. And what you just explained gives them that back and puts that smile on their face. Like, oh, I do have control of this decision, whether I want this done or that done or control their own pain or whether they want a blanket or not, you know, instead of just plopping it on them, you ask first because everything's been taken away from them. And right. one time I had this little lady, she had a, she was in a wheelchair and she was struggling a lot and she was taking her trash out and boy, I just jumped right in and man, did I get an earful and she was probably in her late eighties and she said, I can do this myself. And the more that you help me, the weaker I become, which I thought was so interesting because I never thought right. of it. She was really old. She looked like she was struggling, but it was all she had was she could take out her trash by herself. And that was very yep. important to her. And I just, it took me a minute and I went, wow, yeah, you know, I know that. You know, the people want to be able to have a little bit of control even at the end of life. Yes. And family members forget about that. They really do. The other thing that I know we're, we're, well, we're not too close yet, but what the other thing I wanted to uh, touch on a little bit is the fact that when a family gets kind of uncomfortable because it's taking too long for someone to die, my thought on that, and would love to hear your thought on this too, is my thought on that is that, and this is more the spiritual end of it, is that when a soul's ready to go, it's going to go. But until it's complete, it won't leave. And also that when people are in pain, sometimes it takes a little bit longer. That's just my there's, thought. There's also, yes, and, and, and that's absolutely right. And, and there's also this, in letting go, it, it's getting to a certain level of not doing anymore. And, and so recently I had a patient um, who uh, was dying from breast cancer and she, she was in her home and her family was looking after her. And she was finally at that point where she wasn't eating or drinking anymore. And, and the family, she was comfortable. She was well-managed. Her symptoms were fine. She was resting comfortably, but she was still there. And, and the family was very anxious. And when I started to talk to the family and find out what they were doing, um, they were still trying to get her to take sips of water. They had oxygen on her. Mm. And so I just slowed, slowed them down and said, so you're happy with, you know, you see that your mom's comfortable. You see that she's getting good care. You, you've done, everyone has said their goodbyes. Everyone said that they, they love you. And, and family was, Oh yes, doctor, we are so, everything's great. This has gone so well. We're just, we're just anxious now because, because she's still here. And so I explained it that it's time to stop doing, it's time to just start being right now. She doesn't need oxygen anymore. She doesn't need sips of water. She just needs to be kept comfortable. Um, and the family, and I said, so does, does that make sense? And, and they were like, yes, yeah, absolutely. And I said, so just take away all the doing everybody don't fuss. She's comfortable. Just be there at bedside. And, and they were, it was about an hour conversation. And at the end of the conversation, they were all very grateful. 
Um, and she literally died two hours after that conversation. Oh. And that happens over and over and over again. Because yeah. we just finally get to that point on both sides, the individual that's dying that and the family and friends. Okay. And did you have that conversation in the room with the patient or did you go to another room? So, so usually uh, if I'm in this, in this case, cause of COVID I was on the phone. Okay. Well, just <laughs> but because normally I will have that conversation right in the room with the patient because I'm there for them. And most of the time I've seen that patient when they first come on service. Right. So I know what their wishes are. Right. I know if they have, so I know if they have certain fears or concerns and it's normalizing that conversation with everybody in that room. And, and, and those are the things that, that everybody experiences on their own journey at end of life. It's so, but it's curious because, you know, you said, Jen, she died two hours later. These are the unseen mysteries of dying they really are right. whether there's somehow she was in a different dimension she could and i totally believe that she could hear that conversation i wouldn't for two seconds i i wouldn't even i mean i believe it i just believe it and you right. know the fact that that happened everybody's energy changed in that room right well, we can let her go we don't have to give her water anymore we're not killing her we can take the oxygen off and we're not killing her because that's what people think that's what goes through their mind yes people feel that they're it's it's the same as your story about the uh, the daughter and her father falling at 93 we're so focused on doing 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 right that's such a good point well you know i want you to tell us about destiny because i know we're getting close here so when where you're the hospice that you're at now how can we contact you dr graham and then if we have any questions and Tell us a little bit about, I know Destiny is very, it's, it's a hospice that does it a little bit differently. And uh, if you could share with us just a little bit about it, that would be great. So like we talked about in the beginning, every hospice is different. Every hospice team is a little different. Um, what's exciting about Destiny is um, the person, the owner and the person that created Destiny is a nurse. Her name is Joy Ekpo, um, and she has created a home health hospice and palliative care um, team. Um, and because she's a nurse, she's, she is very, very sensitive about end-of-life issues. And one of the things that she does that I haven't done with any other hospice is when, when a patient is, is actively dying and in their last days, she makes sure that a nurse comes and visits every day, That's awesome. um, even if all the symptoms are, are managed because wow. she knows that that's an important time. And, and a lot of families will say, well, everything's fine. But then when the nurse actually does show up and it normalizes everything, it says, yep, everything's going according. You're doing a great job. You're doing everything. And your loved one is very um, comfortable and cared for. And so that's something that she has created. Um, It's a family owned business. um, So the the teams, um, there's really good communication and ongoing communication. And, And she's created a hospice um, that started in Riverside County, but she looks, um, we look after patients in Riverside County, all of Riverside County, um, parts of LA County and parts of San Bernardino County. Mm-hmm. And now we're bringing Destiny Hospice to, and covering all of San Diego County. Fantastic. Um, so that's, the, yeah. So it's, we've got so that, yes, the number yeah. is 877 503 8415. Say it one more time. 
877-503-8415. Perfect. So if anybody has any questions or comments, they can email me. You can call the hospice, have any questions answered. Um, and I think... And I can give you my email if you'd like it. Oh, we would love I'm happy that. to answer any kind of emails. Okay, so it's B H Graham G R A H A M M D at live L I V E dot com. That's beautiful. Okay, that's great. Yeah, because there's so many people. Because because it, there, there, we we can't learn enough. I mean, this is this we can't learn enough, and there there's just always more questions. Um, and and knowing that there are people we can reach out to to get those questions answered is just so nice to know. That's perfect. And that's that's perfect. Dr. Graham, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was very informative. Anybody can listen to this show and they're going to have all their questions answered. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. So thank you so much. You are so welcome. It was a pleasure spending time with you, Nina. Okay. You take care, Dr. Graham. You too. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, great show today. If you have any questions about hospice, if you have anybody you're putting on hospice, if you've got a family member that's not feeling well, you can just get your questions answered and have a sense of peace and know that everything's going to be okay, whether your patient is or your family member, loved one, whoever is going to pass away or whether they decide to stay. So, Until next week, inspiring end-of-life conversation. Thanks you, and you guys have a great week, a great weekend. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you have found hope in this week's edition of Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. Please join your host, Nina Impala, for another program next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again soon.